Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome back to the PetroNerds Podcast. This is uh, episode 10 of the PetroNerds Podcast, so Ethan and I are pretty excited about this. I am your host, Trisha Curtis. I'm the CEO of PetroNerds, and this is my co-host, Ethan Bellamy. Hello, Trisha. Good to see you again. Good to see you, too. It's nice to actually be back in person together. I don't have the technical as many technical difficulties as I had last time. And, uh, and I don't have to argue with my father about our inability to get good <laughs> video like we did last time. Yeah, so it wasn't that bad. I mean, we got a, a shout-out on Twitter. We got lots of shout-outs on Twitter. Well, that's okay. good. It's because of the uh, mostly because of the audio. Let's dive in. Oil macro, oil and gas on federal lands, U.S. exports. The Made in America Tax Plan Infrastructure. It's April 7th, 2021. This is episode 10, and we're going to dive right in. Let's start, Tricia, with the U.S. cutting its supply outlook while OPEC expands. Awesome. Great quite a great topic. Um, so yeah, we will start with the US and we'll kind of just dive into all this stuff because we do have a we have a lot of ground to cover. So the US actually the EAA reduced the or reduced the outlook for for production. And I think it was Vicky Holub, the CEO of Pioneer, or I'm sorry, we'll get to Pioneer in a second. Um, it was Vicky Holub who made some comments with regards to OPEC's what OPEC is doing and with uh what with the U.S. shale outlook being flat. And she actually said, so this is, Vicki Holub is the CEO of Occidental Petroleum. And she actually was basically saying OPEC, OPEC Plus has done a great job. And she was saying that the U.S., we're just not going to see 13 million barrels a day again. Um, I think she said there, the quote, too much investment and, and it says would be required for the U.S. to return to its peak of around 13 million barrels per day. So that, that's her standpoint. And she said this in, um, this is a, a Bloomberg article, but she said this in Riyadh in February as well. So she's echoed this a few times. And then I think she also is quoted saying, they're trying to get back to a supply demand situation. And she's talking about OPEC plus. Quote, many of the countries worldwide need 60 or 70 or $80 to break even. And so ultimately, I think in 2022, we'll get to $70 or better. And the reason I wanted to bring this up, because we, I, I thought we could circle around to this whole where prices are at right now, where the industry seems to think prices are going. And $70 is not unrealistic, but also where sort of, you know, we talked about OPEC plus last week in depth and those numbers and everything. And the one thing I just want to correct on here is that we're we're stuck right now. We're at a, we're at a range bound at sixty dollars crude oil prices, and um, those fiscal break evens. Yes, they technically need that to fiscally break even. Have they achieved those? Do they get that when they want it? Just because it's their fiscal break even, they haven't got those prices in a few years, so it it's not as relevant anymore. I don't think so. To just say that, I mean, seventy dollars is more realistic than some of the prices we were talking about last week. But do you agree with that? Yeah. And the big question is why anybody would be bullish over any extended period of time given OPEC spare capacity. Yeah. And that's the so that $70 price target is not that that's not unrealistic. Right. We we were pushing. We were getting close to those levels and it came back down. But I think that OPEC spare capacity and then what we're seeing now with like the U.S., as we talked about last week, the U.S. sort of driving the growth engine for demand all these concerns now, and obviously Brazil's not doing well with the virus. India's not doing well with the virus. The raw in Europe has been atrocious. So we're sort of that bright spot for demand. So let's just say everything gets, you know, 
things start getting a little better, you still have all the spare capacity. And just to the numbers, because I don't know if we stated them correctly or, or clearly enough in the last podcast, but it's OPEC Plus said they're going to do 2 million barrels a day. The math doesn't quite work if you run these numbers. They said, and it's May, it's April, May, and June. So remember, OPEC Plus meets every month. So they can easily, they're not going to probably change anything this next meeting, but you know, in a couple months, they could probably change course if they wanted to. They're going to add 350,000 barrels a day back one month, another 350,000 barrels a day back another month, and then 450,000 barrels a day. Just if you do those numbers, that's not quite a million barrels a day. And then during that time period, also Saudi Arabia is going to bring their million barrel they cut back. So you're looking at a million barrel or two million barrels a day plus for that. Before cheating. Before cheating. Exactly. Before cheating. I guess. And I think prices cooling off do sort of disincentivize that cheating a little bit. Right. This is the way. And and the Saudi oil minister is on the record for his metaphors are hilarious. So like we're testing the waters, you know, this is, Mm. you know, we're adding this. He's I mean, they're sort of testing the waters. But I think the reason he keeps emphasizing that is because he wants to have the play. If things start going south really quickly, he wants everybody to cut again. So just everybody needs to keep that in mind that they haven't brought the barrels back yet. You know, they're slowly bringing them back and we're range bound at 60. So to think that you're for sure going to see, you know, these very high oil prices, I just think we have to be a little bit cautious. And the more and more you hear from the industry, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. People within the oil and gas industry are very, very confident that prices are going up. You know, this is the trajectory. And that's just, um, it's not, if, if we didn't have all those barrels back, you know, if those were already on the market and these were the prices, I would say you could believe that. But I just think there's more production out there and there's a lot of production that wants to be produced at 60 plus dollar oil. And I think it's because most of the pundits we're talking about are people who are long U.S. and are looking at the lack of U.S. capex and the low U.S. rig count. And the bigger picture is, well, the Saudis have a tap. So. Yeah. And that's that's the point I think with Vicky Holub is saying she's kind of using her position and where her vantage point of looking at the macro and you can, we've seen people get in trouble with that. We've seen Mark Papa from Centennial Resources get, get the macro wrong because of his vantage point. We've seen Harold Hamm do the same thing with Continental Resources and they literally, you know, change course of their companies by getting the macro wrong. So it's pretty important to get the macro right. And I think if you're, yeah, if, if you're thinking we're not going to go above 11 million barrels per day, we're stuck. That's we were at 13 million barrels per day. That's technically I think Ethan and I both agree that technically we could easily go back to 13 million barrels per day from a technical standpoint. Whether or not we will actually do that is another question. But the other piece of this is that these I pulled up the rig count again. And last week, you know, we last week we were saying that the U.S. rig count, at least for Permian, was on a steady trajectory to keep moving up. Right. And. It's on a steady trajectory to basically to go to 300 rigs. We're at 228 rigs right now, according to Inveris. And as we mentioned before, they include lots of other, they include workover rigs and like all rigs. But I think it's important to look at the entire U.S. because Inveris data, so keep that in mind. You're talking about workover rigs, you're talking about saltwater disposal rigs, everything that's being drilled. But we have 501 rigs running. So it's, it's quite, I mean, from where we were, we've recovered significantly. Now we have over a thousand rigs that are stacked. So that's another whole thing. So a lot of rigs that are stacked, but the Permian, and those are so many of these small operators. I mean, Pioneer is your biggest company drilling at 21 rigs. We'll get to their purchase in just a minute. Um, Devon is second at 14, EOG at 13 rigs. And you've got 
228 rigs running, you still have 411 rigs stacked in the Permian. But the point is that you're growing up. And then when you break down who these companies are, there are just so, so many tiny companies. When you bring that list down, we're, we're, you're not even looking at the top 10 operators and you're starting to get to Taprock. Chevron only has six rigs running. GBK has four rigs running. You just have a lot of tiny operators. And those tiny operators are going to bring production on. Whether, I mean, it's not going to like, they're not going to just do ducks and just sit there or whatever. I think they're going to bring production on. So the big boys may be a little more um, cautious in their approach and they may be spending, but these cumulative, these tiny guys. And, you know, we, you used to be able to, when the Permian was producing 2 million barrels per day, it was like half small guys and half big guys. And that switched now. I just think the, the activity in the role of small players is still important in the Permian. Absolutely is. And remember that the majors left the Permian. It was the independence that yep. brought on unconventional there. Yeah. So maybe we're seeing a little bit of a repeat there. Yeah. And, and then I also just want to note, we've talked about the, we've talked about the Eagleford before. And I, I, I think Ethan and I are both pretty confident in Texas production and everything. And the Eagleford's at 41 rigs. And I just think it's important to watch. I know somebody had asked us in, on Twitter to talk more about natural gas and we won't in this podcast, but we certainly will. Cause I, I think natural gas is going to do great in the Eagleford. And I think it's in number 11. What? In our next episode, right? Yes, we yes. will talk about. We will talk, we'll um we'll try Some, to get Sometimes through. Trisha's brain it goes even faster than her mouth, which is hard to believe. So uh <laughs> so natural gas, we will get to it, but I, I'm pretty bullish on Eagleford for oil and natural gas, and I'm really bullish on the Haynesville. I think the Haynesville is just gonna absolutely kill it. So we will get to that. And um and if you're if you're following natural gas production, it's recovered nearly to what we were pre-COVID levels. And that's just a tendency of the yeah, molecules. We, so. we need to find more things to argue about because I agree on the Haynesville. Yeah. I think it's prime time. I don't worry. Haynesville's back, baby. Yeah, I think Haynesville's back. And I think actually, I think it's underestimated. I think people are going to see these, like we're, we're going we're gonna to start to see people really crushing it. And we haven't seen that many big players. I'm sure we will find something to argue. Um, okay, Pioneer purchased, uh, Pioneer purchased a double point, right? Yes. Yes. And, and they absolutely crushed production in 2020 when everybody else was laying rigs down, they went aggressive and, and, uh, grew production massively. Smartly. Yeah. Um, the consensus of energy finance Twitter is that, uh, let's just say they got a great deal for themselves. Um, Pioneer 6.4, I mean, 6.4 billion is not a small number, especially now. I mean, it's just as, yeah, that's not a small number at all. That's a lot of money. Um, and if you look at their well, so I mean, this is it's slightly dated, and I, I'm working on on updating this production data. But I'm I was just looking at all their wells. For <laughs> we're talking, it's we're we're shy of at least in 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 late fall. It was like October data. This was uh, not that many wells. I mean, we're like talking 200 wells. So it, it fits really nicely. So I think from an acreage standpoint and where they're at and everything, it fits nicely, and it really. Already Pioneer was the number one, you know, they had ousted Oxy, so they're the number one producer. They're definitely the biggest player in the Permian Basin by far now. I, I wish, well, maybe we will get Tom Loffrey on to talk about his uh, his analysis of the deal um, once the uh, the market players have been positioned correctly. Because um, I, I think definitely the contiguity of the acreage was was pretty solid. Some question about the, uh, the valuation Bomber posted something about that. He was uh, a little bit skeptical, shall we say. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, uh, certainly, you know, building a big Permian acreage position, I think Tom would probably argue that they, Pioneer, really needed to do that for inventory purposes. I mean, that's the thing is that, so 
I don't the the actual acreage size, but we're talking like fifty thousand barrels a day production, roughly, and some you know sub three hundred wells. So it's not production, but it just seems the sticker price seems like a lot for that. But they're big. I mean, I think. I the other thing I think people aren't realizing is that some companies have been able to go to the debt market and finance and do okay. And I think Pioneer has is doing it. They're favored by the market. They're doing okay. They're in the same boat, I think, as Chevron. So, I mean, and they're the biggest player. And this play is going to be around forever. And they are exclusively Texas. So they're not in a bad position. I mean, but they have made a lot of acquisitions lately. Well, they're on the right side of the border. And that may be a, a good segue into our next topic. Um, yes. Well, let's talk about federal lands. There was a, there was a four hour zoom call, uh, held by the secretary of interior entitled interior public forum on the federal oil and gas program. And I started watching this, uh, this morning, there were 18 likes and I think a thousand views on YouTube suggesting that for something that is so impactful to so many people in the industry, uh, that hasn't really been socialized yet. And I think it's important for anybody who's operating on federal lands, whether it's um, service companies or anybody who's got permits, I think it's important for you to watch maybe at least two or three hours of this. Uh, but what did you think about the, well, there's a lot to unpack there. It was a, it was a whole lot to unpack. We had API, Earth Justice, Tribes for Oil and Gas, Tribes Against Oil and Gas, it was it was quite the menagerie. I mean, I was uh I was actually watching. So I was watching it last night, and I'm I'm texting Ethan, sending uh voice clips, and I'm texting. I was texting Chuck Yates as well, and 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 I I mean I was very, I was kind of lit by it because I think that the um so the agenda just so to clarify from Ethan's perspective, it, it it's over three hours. I have not completely finished it. I will because I I'm I'm diving into it on a very deep level. But it sort of it starts out with. You know, Deb Holland gives these opening remarks and she does remarks. The Secretary of the Interior. Yes. Deb Holland, Secretary, Acting Secretary, or the Secretary of Interior. She gives opening remarks and she then she's not present for the rest of it. Um, and she is pretty, I mean, it's it's not very biased. It's, it's very relatively open. She talks yeah. about how, you know, oil and gas is going to be with us for a long time. And this is this is the public forum on federal oil and gas. Uh, I'm public forum on federal oil and gas program, which is kind of a, a weird title. But anyways, so you have the the. Uh, three women that are within the Department of Interior. And important important to state for context that uh, Secretary Holland said that we are operating under Executive Order 14008, which was Biden's um, tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad. Yes. So that so we've referenced that executive order. And this kind of gets back to because, I, you know, when people are talking about oil prices and when I'm talking with clients or I'm talking with lots of folks in the industry, I get asked a lot about, you know, the, the regulatory perspective and why I feel as probably as negative as I feel about this in the, uh, the, this administration's uh, stance on oil and gas and how I just, I don't think it bodes well for the, the industry. And we hadn't heard much, right? We, nothing had really happened in the last several months. And supposedly the Bureau of Land and Management is now allowed to actually do so they can permit again because the 60-day moratorium from order number 3395 from the acting secretary of interior at the time that um that is now over with and they ref this was that order was brought up a few times as well so that's over with but if you talk to operators 
it seems like BLM is technically allowed to approve permits, but they're not actually doing that in any aggressive fashion. So it just seems things like you're stuck. So this happened on March 25th, and they basically said there's a comment period. So they do this big form, and then they say there's a public comment period. So you have until April 15th to get your comments in. They ask that they not be long. They want them to be brief, and they want any and all comments. So say that deadline again. It's April 15th. So two weeks they've given Yeah, for was, federal oil and gas. It was, it was pretty short. Okay. And so the people in this forum, I mean, and this is, it's really important to listen to and think about, and you can just call me, you know, if you really want to know the lowdown on how this actually went down, but it's, you have um, the the person representing or do, giving the BLM presentation, that's Nevada Culver with BLM. And then you have Amanda Lefton and she's, that's the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. And so you get these two presentations, which were actually excellent. They were great overviews. They gave you the facts. I mean, a couple of big highlights from it, I think, from federal the federal oil and gas leasing is just understanding of this how much they're producing and, and where they're at in, in the amount. And some of the big takeaways are because API had come back and, and made a comment that because um, one of the one, somebody within the forum had said that they'd kind of accused the industry of of stockpiling permits and that the the industry had a ton of permits so that we didn't need to worry about that regardless. And they show a permit chart of those the permits slowly going up, but they do show that 2019 and 2020 are um, had slowed down a little bit. The royalty, the minimum royalty that was set forever ago, which twelve point five percent, yeah, right, which is that's not a not the, egregious. Yeah, it's not egregious, um, but it's not unfair either. I mean, that's it's not a right. I don't think it's a hor it's not a horrible rotary, but I think they were laying out a lot of these things that were set in the past and should be revised upwards. So I'm assuming they would like much higher royalties if they um, I'm, that'll be interesting in the context of that discussion. If they want to stop oil and gas leasing, I would be surprised if royalty rates aren't higher. Yeah, I would be surprised as well. I think it's a guarantee that because the incentive you know, I'm not certain the, these all these women on this thing. I don't think they're necessarily their personal agenda is to to end this. But the amount of times they reference the executive order on climate change, because this is why they're doing it. I mean, this executive order on climate change, literally within it, which we talked about before, was suspending you know or temp or suspending all leasing on federal land for per this evaluation period. So all this stuff that's happening right now in this forum is part of this evaluation period, and so they start with giving you the facts and explaining all the data. So even if you listen to the first 30 minutes, you would get a lot of information on just the, how the programs work. But the really good thing was the data, the numbers, which Ethan and I were talking offline and he was basically saying it's it's sort of irrelevant from a, a dollar perspective. Well, wait, before you get into that, the other thing is bonding, which they would suggest is too low. Yes. So right, right out of the gate, the two variables that if you're looking to lease on federal land will probably go up will be the royalty rate and the bonding requirements. Right. And and that's part, I mean, as part of the infrastructure plan, which don't worry, we were definitely going to talk about the infrastructure yes, plan. We will. Um, as part of that, you know, in the, in the two weeks, was it last week when Biden actually first talked about it? He talked about the abandoning, you know, giving money for the abandoned well program and, and, and plugging those wells. So this is all sort of ties together and gets a little complex and confusing because they did actually within this form as well, when they kept talking about federal land, they were like, hey, you know, we are talking about federal land, but we're not precluding. They literally said we're not precluding what we could do with private land. And I was like, OK, well, that's not your jurisdiction, you know, so uh, might be a bit of an overreach. But it sounds to me like they are going to use the studies and everything from this to maybe influence stuff that's going to happen on private land. So a couple of big takeaways. And this is a really great slide and chart um, that the one of the first women gave and this is the woman on from the BLM and it was it was that 
for the statistics for 2020 um, was that over 3.46 billion in revenues came in just from federal land. This doesn't include the offshore. And this is 2.3 billion in royalties. So again, if, if royalty rates were to go up, that's going to increase 92.9 um, million in bonus bids and 23 million in rentals. And I do believe there's other additional money that I know that bonus bid, they referenced that there were outside money or additional money they could get. So I don't think that's a cap. Uh, and for sure, if that was 2020, I think we could historically see more. In 2019, their estimates were um, that it contributed, that federal land for oil and gas contributed $71.5 in estimated economic activity. So that's not a small number. It's a decent amount. And it supported 318,000 jobs, also not a small number. So that's pretty big from just a federal lands perspective. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and they don't put it particularly on the slide, but they note it. They say that they do explain that um, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, it's basically Gulf of Mexico production. That's the majority of production that we're talking yes. about. It's about a million barrels a day. And they say that's 15% of, of U.S. production. Is That's the numbers they were using at the time um, for 2020. And that, uh, so for OCS, for Office of, I do, I'm getting this wrong. Outer Continental Shelf. Yes, thank you. Outer Continental Shelf. That's over $3 billion in revenue just from those leases alone. So they didn't break the numbers down, but it's a lot of money. I mean, and they produce a lot of gas. So the point is, and this does, this money goes to a lot of different entities. So they will have to either increase the, um, if they're going to stop leasing um, and stop generating new business in this, it's going to be existing leases and existing permits, which no matter how they slice it is going to, is going to probably slow down. But the the great thing was that, so the first tranche of people that came on, um, the first group of people was actually from, um, was from the tribal lands. So you had three different tribal entities speaking, and I will not botch this, but that one was from, uh, one was from Alaska. Um, one was from Colorado and New Mexico. And the other one was, she was on the East coast, right? She was on, she was in the Potomac, I believe. Um, she was in DC. Anyway, so you had three tribal land folks. They didn't agree. They obviously had, they had one guy who was very anti-oil and gas, um, and explaining all the spills and everything that was, was taking place. And I'm not discrediting that. I'm, I'm, sure there are valid concerns there. Um, the woman in Alaska, she gave a lot of numbers and stats that were pretty damning. Um, she was very bullish on oil and gas and yes. uh, defended the industry and cited that 25% of the activity in Alaska is based on oil and gas. And so she was definitely a proponent. And I think she also said that the uh, native population there has been dealing with climate change for 100 years and doesn't see a problem doing that. I don't think they was even saying seeing a problem is that they, she was saying that they've been dealing with climate change for decades and they've adapted to it and they understand it well because they live there. She also pointed out that the, just some of the things that they were concerned about was that their rural population, a lot of these people literally use generator, diesel generators. And she invited them to come out there and was just like, you better be prepared to come to Anch- past Anchorage and you better be prepared to stay a week here because you need to take a day to fly here. You didn't need to take a day to adjust. And then you need to actually see, you need to see the stuff that no one goes to and sees where these people in rural Alaska actually and live. And just for our audience out there, if anyone would like to sponsor the Petro Nerds team to go out to Alaska for a week, I would be very happy to take you up on that. Oh, so. and I would, I would kill to do a, to do podcast interview people. I would absolutely, I'll go to the roughest places in the last. I, I, I bet you would. Sounds, well, sounds amazing. There are, there are hundreds of U.S. tribes and, uh, I had the pleasure of, uh, marketing into some of those tribes, financial management in the past. And, uh, I was taught that 
there is no such thing as a unified opinion on anything among those tribes. Uh, of all the hundreds of tribes, you get hundreds of opinions. So don't make the mistake of of thinking that there's a monolithic view. No, and I just thought it was good. So Fawn Sharp was the she was the president of the National Congress of American Indians. Um, Mario Atencio was a board of directors for. Uh, I'm gonna. It's Dine Care, C E A R E, and then Nicole Barino Bor, or. Boromio, she was the, the one we're referencing from Alaska, and she's the executive vice president and general counsel for the Alaska Federation of Natives. And I just, her discussion was interesting because she also pointed out to uh, the corporations. So within Alaska, um, because they do have so many tribal entities within Alaska, and they also have native corporations, and they legally, according to all the rulemaking and stuff that we've done, they legally have to have a seat at the table. And those are oil companies. So these are Alaskan native oil companies that have to have a seat at the table. And I thought it was interesting when they were asking, so when the Department of Interior was asking them, you know, what are some best practices, and all, not just best practices, but what are some things we can do to to help with this? And they all of them said the dialogue. All of them were saying they wanted better dialogue and communication, and that they didn't give enough advance notice, they had to comb through the messy system, the web system to be notified. And these people were nodding their heads like that. I thought, well, crap, that sucks. You would have to be on it to be seeing these stuff posting, and then they have to comment back. So, and the stuff that we had referenced before in order number 3395, that was mentioned because Department of Interior at the time had listed Indian, you know, tribal lands and Indian lands on that suspension of delegated authority, which they had no legal claim to actually do that. Which was a giant screw up. Yeah, it sounds like it was a screw up. And they referenced this. These folks were saying, hey, you put us on that. And it, they didn't say, hey, it that's was not legal. They just said there was a lot of confusion um, because- yes, confusion about you trying to do something illegal. Yeah, and they yeah. also referenced the same thing we did, which was the consultation that other, basically it, it um it went against their sovereignty and it violated a a previous agreement that was in order and just how they consult because they basically did not consult tribal leaders and lands when they issued that order and that was something all these tribal groups were saying within this meeting was you have to consult us if you're going to do something you have to consult us i again think this is very interesting this conversation that's taking place and some of the things that the the woman from alaska was commenting because she said look we're in support of climate of initiatives on climate change. We are not in support of uh, getting of transitioning tomorrow and of doing this in a rapid fashion because we use we produce and we use oil and gas and we don't see uh, the ability to switch off of it tomorrow. And that was just their her statement on this. And this just to underline it leaves us in an interesting position, which is that on the one hand they want to have a rapid transition away from fossil fuels. But on the other hand, they want to make sure that they incorporate tribal consultation and uh, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a little hard when you, um, you know, you have to respect if these tribal lands or these tribal leaders want to want to rapidly transition and they want to put solar and wind and, and green tech and geothermal. What If they want to do all that, there may be some options for geothermal and stuff there, but if they want to do that. That's up to them. That's great. But that's their economic revenue drivers. And um, and they I think it was pointed out and there's a lot of. Uh, mineral rights and a lot of money from oil and gas that goes to tribal lands. And that's why all of them, um, I don't know if that, that, that gentleman had mentioned, but the other two women basically commented that the oil and gas industry is very important for their, as a revenue stream. So they can I, to me, I surmise it as they made it pretty clear that um, they're not getting rid of oil and gas anytime soon. If you game this out far into the future and you assume that 
there are some owner's restrictions on private lands. You can see a future for oil and gas where you have an extraordinary concentration of production on tribal lands. Yeah, and it could make it to where, you know, it could make it to where they're more open to doing business with, oper- you know, Very op- so. operators that bringing in operators, incentivizing them to come in because they have an opening. It's it's no different than than the, you know, us being down, we're at 11 million barrels per day and OPEC being able to seed market share. I mean, if you're seeing everybody hurting, if you're have the, I mean, if you're in the Uinta Basin or you have, um, you're the Fort Berthold Reservation, this could be an opportunity for you to say, hey, we're open for business come to us. And that may or may not work. And best practices and everything certainly have to be done, but it's just something to think about. This, this could be um, actually a positive from an oil and gas standpoint on native lands, should they want it. Um, so enough on the end. I welcome, you know, I don't know who all listens. We, I don't know exactly who listens. I know we're getting, gaining an EFT community um, base of, of listeners. Um, but if folks disagree or want to jump on or want to talk about stuff, I am more than willing to have folks on the podcast, um, especially on issues like this. So, um, the, the forum continues and I, I have not finished it. I don't know if Ethan has finished it, but the forum does continue with the industry experts and you have somebody from API talking that individual did explain that he, he seemed a little defensive. He did explain that the industry was not stockpiling permits and that's not quite how it works. I would actually say that some players within the industry have stockpiled permits because they intelligent players, because they knew that Biden might clamp down on them. EOG is one of those companies. But the industry as a whole, I don't think I personally do not think did a good job at all stockpiling permits, which they actually should have done. And that's legal. There's no I don't see how that could be an issue, but they do point to that. So it's interesting that they say we are not impacting existing permits, yet they reference, but the industry has stockpiled a bunch, so it wouldn't matter anyways. Um, that that type of talking and everything does make me a little bit nervous. And then, um, so you had the, the, uh, the industry panel, which I didn't think was very good. I wish they would have had an operator. I wish they would have had somebody outside of API. I didn't think it was a, I did not think it was a very good representation of the industry um, as a whole. And then the second, or the, the, Form that we both watched some of it. Earth Justice came out swinging pretty hard. Um, all the environmental folks from the environmental group was it was Earth Justice and um, the Arctic or Ocean Conservatory and the NRDC. They were all anti. Um, surprisingly, they're all anti oil and gas, and they were all for no more drilling at all ever again on federal land. Immediately putting a stop to all new leasing and everything. I I don't know if they went as far as saying you know, taking away the permits, but they, I know Earth Justice called the New Mexico Permian Basin a climate bomb. Um, So, you know, there's that. And that was very clear where they stood on this issue. I can hear Putin clapping in the background. Um, You know, it was just so, so we'll see. It was a, it was an interesting, um, there was a lot of passion in that one as Mm. well. Yeah. Right. So let's get on to the case of what actually is infrastructure and talk about the make America great again, tax plan. No, it's not called that. It's called the made in America tax plan that came out today that would cut $35 billion of oil and gas. Uh, let's call them tax preferences. It would include, uh, intangible drilling costs, uh, depletion expense, um, the publicly traded partnership tax code, which would have some interesting implications for enterprise Magellan, et cetera, energy transfer, 
so what's your grand take on the the tax plan and what it would mean for the oil and gas se- sector? Okay, so that's a big question. Is this Moore's question of is this more drilling question of what is what is infrastructure, which I think we can probably address. So there's, start there. Yeah, there's two broad, I think, two broad things that are they're going on with this. And we'll actually touch on some of the, the power stuff as well, I think, because China was referenced a lot. So Biden gave another speech today, if you saw it, and he was talking about the you know, he's basically trying to sell this this infrastructure plan. Um, so there's two things happening. This is both an infrastructure plan that is going to spend a lot of additional tax dollars. So this is a $2 trillion infrastructure plan, apparently spread over 10 years, which personally, for all the stuff that they want to include, especially the the decarbonizing of the grid, I don't think that's enough money because most of the math on the decarbonation for the grid just for transmission alone is in the trillions itself. So I don't think that's going to work. But so it's two trillion to do this. And then the problem is now it's it's a uh, it's called the infrastructure plan, but there's a whole tax changes with it. So now there's a whole tax plan. And so that's what actually some of the questions on from from Twitter were we, the made in America tax plan. Um, and this is, an, you know, making America. It is interesting that the firm is making America better, not <laughs> making America great. It's making America better, which is just like, wow, we just took a pivot on on Trump's t- talking point. It's just marketing. Um, but so Biden talked today. And I do think it's a really important to clarify this stuff on China because it's, it's driving me a little bit bananas. And I had a book upstairs, which I meant to bring downstairs on China. But so this art, this is Bloomberg. And they're saying, you know, Biden pitches infrastructure plan as vital to keep up with China. And he referenced China a ton. So he's basically saying, look, China's eating our lunch. They're ahead of us on infrastructure. They're ahead of us on 5G. They build all these airports and they, you know, CNBC put the numbers for look at all the airports they build. and look They're at all building the, more coal plants um, than we are. Yeah. So they don't put that up there. <laughs> how many new coal plants? You got to realize that China, it's it's different. It's not if you're not comparing apples to apples when you're comparing the U.S. and China. And certainly they have robust infrastructure that they have built out. They have built out a lot of stuff. But the primary impetus for building out a lot of this stuff is to have jobs, right? It is literally, let's go build a, you know, we have to hit a GDP growth target. So they have their five-year plan, they set their GDP growth target, and then they have to go hit it. And the way in which they do that is, let's go build roads, let's go build coal plants, let's let's build infrastructure, let's build electric fuel charging stations. And really do your research and watch some of the shows. Seriously, everybody, you need to watch a couple episodes of the Grand Tour where they do this um, and Top Gear as well, and they go to China and it's empty. I mean, there are gas stations that have never been used and charging stations that have never been used because nobody's driving on these roads. And there are, even in the, I referenced this before, but the Energy Transition podcast, which does a really great job on their China episode, um, worth buying just the episode because it really talks about how so much of the stuff is empty. We talked about this with coal, with all the coal-fired power plants and power generation is that so much of them are built and not fully used, but they're built to hit max capacity or peak capacity, right? So, and a lot of that's built on the job creation. So comparing China in terms of, hey, they do all this stuff and this is, and we need to compete with that. It's not fair. It's not the same at all. And all of the stuff that they build is 65, they're, power generation is 65% coal. So don't pat them on the back too much because it's it's built on the back of coal. And apparently that's not what the administration is trying to do. So that's what it's built on. It's not built on, you know, they don't have a superior grid that's that's built on all this, this green tech. And we've pointed out in the previous podcast, I mean, the reason in which they do that is because they have all this coal. The other problem I have with this comparing it to China is that he Biden talks a lot about the um, 
the different, the, you know, democracy is that, you know, we, history is going to judge whether democracy wins and that, you know, that China criticizes us as a democracy because we cannot, um, we can't get it together and we can't just build this stuff. Well, you know, there's a reason that we have, um, you know, we have institutions and we do have checks and balances and, you know, he's, he's, the problem that's happening with this infrastructure bill and this tax plan right now is it doesn't, uh, they're getting pushback from the other side, right? The Republicans and Democrats are not disagreeing on this. And this is not rocket science, okay? This is, I think this honestly is basic economics and basic politics. This isn't like crazy left or crazy right. In the infrastructure plan, and this is where we're gonna get to defining infrastructure, and I would love your thoughts on this, but typically infrastructure, we do think of roads and bridges and highways. That's not, I'm not being really biased here in that, in this infrastructure bill, this is broadened, you know, to things like getting high-speed internet to rural America. I'm from rural America. That's awesome. Bring high-speed internet to rural America. Trust me, my nieces and nephews would love it. But that, then it goes further and it gets into healthcare for at-home care for the elderly and things and actually care for, you know, uh, for, for what, schools and, and care for uh, all kinds of different at-home care. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm screwing up on that. The point is, that's not... That's not infrastructure. That is um, a social welfare. Those are social services. And so putting in an infrastructure bill is that's bullshit. So take it out and put it in a separate bill and call it what it is. And that's really mm. what I think the Republicans are honestly saying is like, that's not infrastructure. Most of it is infrastructure, but it's this put putting the social stuff. And so they're trying to be more broad and inclusive and saying this. They want to, you know, there's tons of stuff in here. But let's 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 be fair and say that. Every time there's a massive bill, it, everybody puts their entire Absolutely. wish list in it. Republicans, and, Democrats, everything. And, and yeah. it would be biased no matter what. But the point is, is that you're calling for they're calling for a whole new tax system, you know, or a tax plan based upon this infrastructure bill. This is going to cause problems. I don't care who would be in office and which parties they're going to fight on it. But the point is that when you're putting in social costs like the these healthcare things or this just at home care, that's not a typical thing we think of infrastructure and that. You're, you're asking taxpayers in a form, whether you're reach, changing the tax codes and everything, you're asking them to pay for it. And I think that is um, that's complicated. So that is also something that we we typically just see in in more European and more. I, I'm not criticizing this either, but it is it tends to be slightly more socialist or more democratic when you're you're spending money on those things and everyone's paying for it. Um, so according to the new Oxford American Dictionary infrastructure the basic physical and organizational structures and facilities needed for the operation of a society or enterprise. Okay. Physical. Physical, yes. And so, organizational structures. Right. And I think, I mean, we, he talked about it and he he tends to, Biden tends to be talking more about the infrastructure stuff of changing out lead pipes. You know, actually my pipes were changed in Denver already, but, you know, changing out everybody's lead pipes. There are lots of stuff in there that is definitely 100% infrastructure that I think a lot of people are in support of. It's just some of these other points. And I have not, I, I it is on my agenda to get much deeper into it. But the point is, is like, that's the, I am really having trouble selling this as a, so that this democratic thing is saying, well, China, you know, China can just do things. They can just pass that infrastructure. They can just go build it. And they're building all these batteries. I am going to clarify again that their batteries are not the best in the business. There is a reason why Tesla is in China. And that's because their the batteries that China makes are not the best. They are not the most efficient batteries. They're not the cleanest. And they process, and I think the Washington Post had, had commented on this and some folks on Twitter had too, that 
you know, they process the majority of the cobalt and the, a lot of, they process a massive amount of the lithium and all these components, both in, in, in the chip sector, but also really in the battery sector. And the processing of these metals and these minerals is environmentally intensive because it typically has radioactive material with it and they have to take that off of it. We don't do a lot of that in the Western world. They tend to do it there because they don't have the environmental standards. And so when we are, you know, putting themselves on, we're, we're really giving it to them. It's almost a compliment to them when Biden's saying this stuff to them of one, you're doing all this stuff and you're eating our lunch and you're doing this. They're doing it with no environmental standards and they're doing it with 65% coal. So I just don't think it's fair to, to liken it. It's, it's not the same thing. And, and we do have rules and structures and we do have rule of law, which they don't, um, that we don't just shove things through. And so saying we should shove this through, um, that's not how democracy works in the U.S. And this debate that we're having and this back and forth and that that's what's going to happen. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, it's April 7th. Russian troops are massing on the Ukrainian border. Wait, we don't want to get into the taxes. Hold on. We're, we have to we have to go back one second and get into this. Um, okay, so there wasn't a question on replacing of the the taxing of so in, within the tax bill we are talking about replacing the subsidies for fossil fuels with incentives for clean energy production and i'm just going to read this cuz it's important but so they talk about climate change is already impacting homes. It, we're having devastating storms, wildfires, et cetera. But they say today the tax code contributes to climate change. So they're saying the tax code today is contributing to climate change by providing significant tax preferences and subsidies for the for the oil and gas industry. And I'm reading this from, this is the Made in America tax plan. So this is the tax plan on the back of this uh, infrastructure plan. The president's tax plan would remove subsidies for fossil fuel companies while providing incentives to reposition the United States as a global leader in clean energy and to ensure that our infrastructure is resilient to storms, floods, fires, and rising sea levels. Targeted investments in a clean and resilient energy future would also boost jobs for American workers and address environmental industries. How exactly interesting how exactly they're going to do all that and, and the types of spending. I mean, that, there's a lot of things you could do with that or could be included. They also say, and this is where I do have to pick a bone as being, I have a background in economics and I've spent a lot of time studying various things, including China. Estimates, quote, estimates from the Treasury Department Department's Office of Tax Analysis Tax okay. Estimates from the Treasury Department's Office of Tax Analysis suggest that eliminating the subsidies for fossil fuel companies would increase government tax receipts by over $35 billion in the coming decade. Okay, that's a lot of money. I get that. And here's the kicker. The main impact would be on oil and gas company profits, right? That makes sense if you're going to take away all the subsidies. So we get that. Research suggests little impact on gasoline or energy prices for U.S. companies and little impact on our energy security. I just don't know how you can impact company profits, but not impact at all energy security or production in the U.S. I just, it's amazing how that goes together. They do cite a study. I will be chasing up that study. You can bet your ass. Um, and it's, it's a 2018 study. And I just find that ridiculous. Yeah. So you obviously cannot change a company's profitability without changing its whack. And without changing the available capital to reinvest in the marketplace, et cetera, et cetera. So we know that is 
nonsensical. Well, and we're already seeing it. So right. you're, you're seeing that we've seen changing in profitability. I mean, prices going negative yeah. and, you know, and the reactions of the industry and you've seen the profitability and folks spending less and the fact that they have to spend more on ESG and yeah. they have to spend more on all these things. They're not putting it in. So now what, no one, but one thing we should say about that though, $10 billion or excuse me, 10 years, $35 billion, three and a half billion dollars a year. That's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. And I do think the way they wrote that emphasized the big number over it the did. course of 10 years. And when you plow that through the amount of, uh, you know, consumption that we have in the U.S. every day, it probably doesn't amount to a huge number, uh, but it still economically matters. And well, of course, if your business, you're, anytime the market interferes and you distort the market, and let's say a company either exists or doesn't exist on the back of intangible drilling costs or depletion, and if all of a sudden you become profitable, have to pay tax, that could shift a bunch of marginal producers out, out of profitability, out of, out of existence. Yeah. And I think it's, I just think it's important to kind of circle this back because the, the actual, the BLM and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, if you're producing, you know, we're, we're talking on the base numbers about 7 billion a year, you know, that's, um, that's more than this, right? So you're going to trim, you're basically saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to stop the oil and gas leasing and we're going to trim that. Now they haven't said they're going to definitely stop, but either they're, it's going, they're curtailing it to some degree. I I'm, have a very strong opinion on that. So that's over 7 billion. That's a lot of money. And then you're saying, okay, we'll get 35 billion over 10 years in these subsidies. And to your point that you just made on, you're shifting this, I not impacting energy security. It's absolutely ridiculous. We, you know, so much of the Gulf of Mexico alone is producing a million barrels a day. I mean that, and, and Alaskan production, all this contributes massively to domestic energy supply. And in turn, in many ways in energy security, I mean, we just, we have it here. We, we have the benefit of producing it here. We have the, and creating those jobs. We have the benefit of refining it here and creating those jobs. We have the benefit of keeping the money here and not sending it elsewhere. And I think it was noted actually within one of those department of interior presentations that there was a great, um, and we will all be showing this in some of my work and putting it on LinkedIn and Twitter, there was a really good chart that did show the, I think it was the NO, National Ocean Industry Association, and they represent both offshore wind and offshore oil. And they were talking about the GHG emissions, or maybe this was API, I might be getting this wrong, but the GHG emissions on a scale and the Gulf of Mexico was actually really low on GHG emissions. And part of domestic production tends to be lower because they do include the full cycle of actually importing it. Um, and I thought that was important. It also was making me think about, you know, the industry keeps getting this pressure for full cycle emissions. And I'm just wondering when we're going to start talking about full cycle emissions on that lithium and cobalt and everything that we're getting from China. Cause I'm pretty damn sure that when 65% is cold, the, the life cycle of that, you know, that battery just doesn't seem as clean. So we, we will have to make those batteries here if it's, if it's going to be about emissions, but that is my opinion. <laughs> and, and the other thing is on these companies. So if we're going to, if we're going to put these companies out of business in the U S and I made this comment abroad, but this is no different than BP selling their assets to another company, a Chinese or Russian company that's going to go do it. This is no, I mean, so you were basically saying, Hey, tribal lands are probably do are in a good position to increase production, but so we're, we're going to reduce it in the U.S. your incentive to produce in the U.S. We are going to have to, that crude oil is going to have to be produced somewhere else. And so we are going to produce it abroad. And I think the narrative gets a little stuck because as we talked about in this, when people define the energy transition, and increasingly, I think it's the accelerated energy transition. And in that, in that view or the vantage point of this accelerated energy transition, that 
demand is just continually declining for oil and gas. So we we don't need it. And therefore, prices are low. Demand is declining, prices are low, and there's lots of this crude oil. And it, it functions very well in this theory of this accelerated energy transition. And so it's not a problem. But the reality is, is that, you know, prices may be relatively stable. They may be around 50 to 60 bucks. Other companies and other industry or other players around the world are probably going to produce it. So we're literally just not producing in the U.S. and it's going to be produced elsewhere. And then we're going to probably import it. And particularly, I think, in the next few years, the given our demand trajectory and post-COVID, it's it's teeing up to be a robust demand growth, at least for the U.S. This is true. So it's April 7th. We're going to close soon, but I want to I want to note for our episode 11, we'll circle back and see if anything came from the Ukrainian uh, Russian tensions building. Yes. And whether that has uh, any implications globally for uh, other actors testing the United States resolve, for example, Chinese and the and Taiwan, uh, the Iranians. There was a uh, a mine of an Iranian tanker by probably the Israelis. So lots of tensions building up that could have impacts on oil. And that's not. I think obviously it's not currently being re- being reflected in oil prices. So we'll see if traders want to add this sort of risk premium to it. I don't think. Um, I, you know, when we look back and see when the last time the Russians did this and, you know, when they were kind of pushing the stuff in 2014 with Crimea, um, the West truly didn't do much to push back. So and you we saw all the stuff that China did over during COVID. We saw how aggressive, you know, this wolf warrior diplomacy became and how aggressive, you know, literally what they're telling us, even just after the the overtaking Hong Kong and basically saying, don't criticize us. I mean, some very, very serious stuff from from overtaking Hong Kong, from pushing into the East China Sea, um, from pushing into you know the, the the spat with India in the in the Himalayan mountains, the treatment of the Uyghurs, Ugu- um, which oh might gosh. might threaten U.S. Olympic participation. Yeah, I mean th- this is a serious like the stuff that China has done even just during COVID because everybody's been very busy and you tend to do this. I mean this is what autocratic authoritarian dictators do or or in folks like Putin and so it makes sense to me that uh, I I've been kind of waiting for Russia to do something because. You know, you do it when everybody's busy and they're focused on what they're doing. So they should have honestly done it six months ago. But it makes sense now that, hey, everybody's busy and and they're just recovering from COVID. So why don't we just step in? Because honestly, who's going to push back? Everybody's they're going to eventually have to do something to stop them. I don't really think it's that negative. You know, we tend to always think war is bad for you or puts that risk premium unless it's going to impact production. I don't at least right now. I don't think it's a, you know. Production is actually at risk. If, if Abcake really didn't do much, then, you know. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that's a lot to read into. I, it. I think that it's, it's something really, really important to watch. It's also really important for this administration because, you know, foreign policy, we've, I've noted this before, but foreign policy is just one of those things that it looks easier on paper when, when you're mm-hmm. coming into office, you think you can be different than your predecessors. But honest, honestly, if you look at like when you can look at very left presidents, very right presidents, they tend to congeal when it comes into foreign policy. They don't necessarily make vastly different decisions. And, and Biden actually hasn't, he is in a huge pickle with Iran and China, though. I mean, it's not it's not looking good. Um, and I just think it is important for listeners and for people to be aware of what China is doing, aware of how their energy is produced and and really aware of. I don't think it's fair to to use China as an example when you want to and then rip on them when you don't. And I certainly don't think it's fair to be uh, saying that their institutions are better than our democracy. OK, well, next week we'll come back to. Uh, global geopolitics and uh, possibly will address uh, 
one of my friends, HL Hunt's wives on uh, on Twitter will address this question about wrens and crack spreads, potentially, if we can get up to speed on that. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Again, I'm Ethan Bellamy, the co-host of the Petra Nerds podcast. This is my lovely host, Trisha Curtis, the CEO of Petra Nerds. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.